The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from James 5, 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, hey, it is uh, it's good to be with you this evening. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here. If you uh, are late, don't worry. Your clock and watch or iPhone are not wrong. We're, uh, we're doing things a little bit different tonight. So I'm going to pray or I'm going to preach up front and uh, talk us through James 5. And then we're actually going to have a longer time at the end to respond uh, in light of what God's word gives us tonight. And so if you're like, did I miss all the singing? No, you just missed one. We got more coming for you at the end. Uh, grab a Bible. Go to James chapter chapter 5. We're going to be hanging out in what Rachel just read for us, 13 through 20. You might notice if you've been paying attention that we skipped verse 12. Uh, there's a reason for that. We have a, a, a handout in your bulletin that explains why we jumped over that verse. It's not because it's not inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God. It just explains that we really didn't know where to put it in a sermon, and so we just said, here's our best explanation of verse 12. You can read that when I get boring in about 15 minutes. Feel free. That's a joke. Uh, let me pray for us. And then let's, uh, let's get into God's word together, shall we? God, thank you so much. God, what a, what a privilege it is to get to gather together and worship you. And one that, that my heart so often takes for granted. God, as I get, I get caught up in the, the setup and the to-do and the get here and the whatever, God, that my heart would want to rush past you, would want to rush past your spirit. And so we pray that in your already promised, always present with us nature, that you would be present in a tangible way tonight. You would fulfill the promise that your word does not return to you void or empty or without bearing fruit, but that you would bear fruit in our lives. We need you. We love you. Paralyzing in Christ's name. Amen. We are closing our series today on the book of James, and I, and I do hope and pray that the last 10 weeks have been extremely helpful and beneficial to you as we've considered what it looks like to have a living faith. And one of the things you might notice is if you read through the New Testament is that a lot of the letters or epistles, books like James, Galatians, Ephesians, those types of deals feel like they end very randomly. It feels like there's a bunch of repetitive arguments throughout the book and then it just kind of comes to an abrupt end. You might have noticed that even as Rachel was reading the end of James 5. When I was growing up, I had this terrible habit. So one of the things I wanted to be among many was an author. 
I wanted to write stories. I wanted to write novels and literature. And so when we would go on long trips from South Carolina to Minnesota to visit my grandparents, I would set out to go, you know what, over the next 14, 15, however many hours, I'm going to sit down and write a story. And so I would start writing and I would have all of this setup and character development and setting development and plot development. And I'd have all of this good stuff for about five pages. And then my hand would start cramping, or I would get bored, or I would get tired. And literally in the middle of the story, no matter what else I was writing, I would end with, and then they all died, the end. (laughs) I'm kidding you not, my mom to this day still has stacks of five page long stories that I have written that all end the same way. And then they all died, the end. And I think endings of epistles or letters in the New Testament can often feel the same way. It's like, "Uh uh-huh, James, you're repeating yourself. I get it. Faith without works. Faith without works. Trial. I get it. I get it. Oh, and by the way, tell that guy to stop preaching heresy. Tell that person to get better. I'm going to come visit soon. The end. Then they all died, the end. It feels random to us. And so is that random? Is that what's happening here in James 5? I would argue, and what I want to show you tonight is that's not what is happening. You see, one of the characteristics of James that we didn't really talk about much in this series is that first and foremost, James is a pastor. And as a pastor, he has deep, deep love for his people. I know that you know this, but it's important to often remind ourselves that church is first and foremost about the people. The church is not a set of classes or programs that you attend. Church is not a Sunday event that you show up to. Church is not an organization or an entity or a set of bylaws. Church, first and foremost, is the people. Later on tonight, before we close the gathering, we're going to welcome seven new members into our church family, into membership. And they're not joining a club. They're not joining an organization. They're not pledging commitment to an organization or a 501c3. They're pledging commitment to a people. And so as James closes his letter, what he's interested in is, hey, how are the people? How are you? How are you doing? And so how he closes is by asking these five questions of this church he's writing to in this letter, wanting to know, how are you doing? And based on how they answer each one, he's going to give them an invitation. He's going to say, okay, if you would say this, then you should do this. If you would say this, then you should do this. And so all I want to do tonight is I want to follow in the footsteps of James. And I want to ask us five questions. To be honest with you, it's going to feel pretty disjointed. It's going to feel kind of like five little mini sermons. And I just want to ask these five questions of you. Hey, where are you tonight? And here's the invitation based on how you would answer it. We're going to handle the first three. It's going to take us more time. The last two are going to go fast, okay? So if it's been like 30 minutes and we're three through three, don't get nervous. I promise. Read the handout. You'll be all right, all right? Five questions for us as we consider the end of James. I just want to ask you, I want to let you ask this of yourself. We'll take them one at a time, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Question number one, is anyone suffering? Pray. Is anyone suffering? Pray. Garrison did an excellent job breaking down last week the theology of of suffering and patience in our suffering. So I don't want to rehash all of that. Instead, I want to tell you a story. That story is about my week that I had this week. So over the past uh, four, four and a half months or so, and if you're in my community group, you know this, I have just kind of walked through a season of suffering. And I don't want to overstate it as like it's the worst time of my life ever. It's not. But it's been tough. Like It's been hard, and I, and I feel like I've taken some hits and some bruises and have walked through some pretty difficult things. And the way that I know that I've been walking through a season of suffering is I talk about it if my, as my soul is getting loose. 
It's the way that I, I tell Lindsay, tell the guys in my group, hey, I feel like I'm getting loose. And what I mean by that is I feel like I'm just not, I don't have a good grasp on what the spirit wants to do with my self-control. So I, I notice it in terms of I start sleeping later. I start eating poorly and making bad decisions. I start, my mind starts to wander a little more. Like I just notice, hey, I'm getting a little loose here and I need to figure some stuff out and get with the Lord. And so one of the things that I've put into practice that I did this Thursday and Friday is I just get up to Asheville for about 24 hours, just me and the Lord. And there's a little retreat center just outside of Asheville and Black Mountain that I go to and just really just to be with God and to meet with him. And so I got to go this past Thursday and Friday. And on Thursday afternoon, I'm walking kind of along this river and I'm trying to put into practice James 5.13 very poorly. <laughs> I don't like being vulnerable. I don't like being weak. I don't like showing emotion. So I'm like, God, I'm kind of suffering. Help me. Like, that's my prayer, right? Just being like, I know I should do this. I just don't really want to. And I don't know how, and I don't know what this looks like, but I know that I'm suffering. And so Lord, I need two things from you. I need you to not let this unrighteously scab over. I need to stay soft. And second, Lord, would you help me be excited about the gospel again? Would you renew and give me back the joy of your salvation? So I'm praying these things, and as I'm kind of walking, it's as picturesque as you imagine it. I'm walking along this little river, and the Lord brings back to mind this hymn that I used to love growing up. It was written uh, by, by a guy named Joseph Scrivens in the 1850s, and it's uh, entitled, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Some of you guys know it. Some of you have sung it. Some of you have heard it. And I just wanted to read the lyrics to you as, as kind of this invitation from James 5:13. This is what he writes. 1,500 plus years ago. What a friend, 150 years ago, I knew math. <laughs> what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we, have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere, everywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. James asks, are you suffering? Are you in a season of darkness? Are you in a season of pain? Are you in a season of doubt? Are you in a season of sadness? James says, here's the invitation for you. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can you find a friend so faithful? what needless pain you're bearing. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Go for the walk, go for the run, go for the drive, sit in your room, weep, cry, yell, talk, do whatever you need to do, pray. Is anyone suffering? Pray. That's the first invitation. The second invitation comes in the second part of James 13. It's a hard shift, fair warning. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Question number two, is anyone cheerful? Sing praise. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In other words, is anyone happy? The word there can be translated as, is anyone full of passion and excitement? 
Is anyone just like excited about life? Would anyone say, I feel like I'm in a good season. I feel like there's some abundance and joy and laughter and excitement. I feel like the Lord's been kind through my circumstances or despite my circumstances. I just feel like I'm glad in the Lord. James says, what do you do? You sing. You sing. You sing praise to him. You step into the gathering, you get in the car, you turn up the volume, you lift your hands, you clap, you shout, you let out a little amen, you go for it. You sing. You celebrate Jesus. If you're suffering, you pray. If you're full of joy and cheer, you sing. And let me just, okay, here's what I gotta do. I gotta pastor us for a little bit, all right? I need you to hear my heart on this, not my words. I'm gonna stay close to my notes so I don't make you too offended. I don't think we're very good. I'm talking to a church family. If you're visiting, so glad you're here. So glad that you wanted to join us. We'd love to meet you, help you know more about Jesus. I'm, let me just talk to kind of our church for a little bit. I don't think we are very good as a church at doing the whole is anyone cheerful thing. I would actually go as far as to say, I think it's one of, if not our single greatest weakness as a church. I think we're really, really good at saying, is anyone suffering? I think we're really bad at doing, is anyone cheerful? Now, many of us have walked through some very real suffering over the past couple of years. Personally, in our own lives, society has walked through a lot of suffering over the past two years. Racial injustice, pandemic, war, raising of inflation, like all of these things. And I get it, and I do, and I don't want you to hear me as dismissing that or saying it's not important or it's not real, but there does seem to be a trend in which we don't take very seriously as a church the commands and invitations of Scripture to rejoice and to celebrate. We don't do a very good job at that as any one cheerful thing. And there's, there's really a couple reasons for this. I want to go into a lot. That's another sermon for another time. Let me just hone in on one particular reason because it relates to singing. I think a big reason why we struggle to be joyful and cheerful as a church and to express it the way James commands and invites us to express it through singing, again, not the sole reason, but one of the biggest, is that we are pretty collectively anti-performative religion. Here's, here's what I mean by that, that we as a church are pretty anti-performative religion. A good chunk of us grew up with or come from or have experience in church traditions where when you showed up on Sunday, you had to be okay. When you walked in, you had to be well put together, you had to be well dressed, whatever that meant for the particular cultural church you were walking into. You had to kind of smile, and if somebody asked, how are you doing? You had to respond, the Lord is good all the time. And they would reply, all the time, the Lord is good. Just me? We rightly said, no, we, we reject that. But that's not okay. That's not right. That's not how it should be. We, as a church family, highly, highly value people being honest about where they're at and how they're doing, such that when you walk into the gathering, when you walk into group, when you interact with other people who call citizens home, we value and push for and fight for that you can be okay not being okay. And I don't, I don't want you to mishear me. I love that about our church. Like, I want us to fight for that, and I want us to push hard for that, and I want us to continue to not lose that. But what can happen is we're not, if we're not careful, is that we can come under the impression that if someone says or acts like they're doing well, then we think they're just lying or fooling themselves or us. So this is how it plays out in scenarios that I've seen. So you're in, you're in community group, and it's engaged the hard time, which is where we split off men and women, and somebody is time to share, and they say, honestly, y'all, it's been a pretty good week. Like, my week's been, my week's been good. There's been ups and downs, but the Lord's been really kind, and I'm just celebrating a lot right now, and it just feels like a joyful season. And instead of us saying, that's awesome, yes, praise the Lord, often what we think or even say is, you want to be honest about your sin? 
you're like lying to yourself? You don't want to share with us? And sometimes it's like, maybe, maybe it's been 50 straight weeks of like, oh, God is awesome. Let's do it. Let's crush it. Which if that's the case, like, let's talk. Cause I want what you have. Okay. <laughs> but sometimes it's like, no, the Lord's genuinely been kind, but we've created this culture of suspicion. When we walk into a gathering, here's what happens when we're in the gathering and we're singing. We have that time of, of worship through song and somebody a few pews over is just, I mean, going for it. Just like arms raising, hooting and hollering, amen and dancing. That doesn't happen, but it'd be nice. Like just going for it in the spirit. And our thought is not, man, praise the Lord. Like they're rejoicing, they're celebrating. I love that that's what God is doing, what the spirit is stirring within them right now. Our first thought is like, you showing off? You want everybody to look at you? What, you like want the attention? Ooh, religious person. What happens if we're not careful, church, is that we create a culture of suspicion around joy here at Citizens, where no one can be joyful, no one can rejoice, no one can say, hey, the Lord's actually doing good, because we don't let them actually step into that. And that's not the invitation from James, right? The invitation from James is, is not, notice what it doesn't read, it doesn't read, is anyone cheerful? Hey, you should go take a second look at your life and your sin and be sad. <laughs> right? What does he say? If you're cheerful, do what? Sing praise. If you're cheerful, go for it. Have joy. Give him praise. And here's the deal, church. We have to be able to have our cake and eat it too. And here's what I mean by that. Our culture of it's okay to be wherever you're at when you step foot into this gathering, our culture of you don't have to put on a facade, put on a face, fake it, that has to apply both to the person who's suffering and to the person who's rejoicing. We have to be able to say, hey, it's okay to be where you're at. And if you're coming in here suffering, let's pray. Let's weep together. Let's grieve together. But if you're coming in here rejoicing, also the Bible commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to celebrate together as well. So let me just invite you. If you've been holding back, if you've been stepping in here and you're like, ah, I want to, spirit's moving, it's do, he's, he's doing something, I want to worship, I just don't know how I'm going to be perceived. I'm going to invite you to not care. Okay? Somebody wants to feel some type of way, let them come talk to me. That's the invitation. If you walk into the gathering and you would say, is anyone cheerful? Yes, that's me. The Lord has been kind. Sing. We need that from you. The Lord wants to hear your praises. If you're suffering, pray. Seek the Lord. If you're cheerful, sing and seek the Lord. All right, verse 14. Let's go to number three. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Question number three. Is anyone sick? Call the elders and pray. Is anyone sick? Call the elders and pray. Is anyone sick? Is anyone struggling with physical pain or ailment? Anyone just get a bad diagnosis? Anyone struggling with, with mental sickness, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder? Call the elders and let them anoint you with oil and pray. Now, it's worth pointing out here that James assumes if you're a follower of Jesus, that you are a part of a local church that has elders. We use elders and pastors interchangeably. And two, that you have a relationship with them such that you can call them when you're sick. That they would actually come and pray for you. And then look what he puts the ownership on. He says, if you're the one who is sick, who calls? You call. Don't say, no one's reaching out to me. I'm sick. No one cares. Call. 
Call, let people know what's going on. Let the elders know so that we can come and pray. And then he says they come and they anoint with oil. And the oil here isn't special in and of itself. Uh, It's probably a a sacramental oil. The people of God would use oil in the scriptures to kind of set someone apart and to say we are praying and consecrating them in a special act of faith. So it's not required, but it was a good idea for them to say, hey, let's anoint this person to say all of us together, we are praying in faith for this person and what's going on in their lives. And this is how he continues. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right, I said one through three was going to take a little time. We got to slow down for just a minute because I got to deal with the theology of verse 15. Because I know, even just from talking to some of you, that verse 15 has been horrifically and wrongfully used in your life. Where someone has said to you, hey, you're sick, and they prayed, and you didn't get healed, and they said, you don't have enough faith. They misuse this verse all the time in scripture. So I want to get some things clear real quick. Two things we need to chat about with verse 15. I would invite you not to not care. Verse one, or point one, sickness and sin are connected. Sickness and sin are connected. Stay with me. So notice what James says in verse 15. He'll be healed, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. All right, so let me explain this connection that I'm talking about. All sickness is a result of sin. All right, stay with me. Here's what I mean. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world and everything started to break down. Everything that was right, everything that God declared was very good started to break down, including our physical bodies, including our bodies, including our physical state. So all sickness can be linked back generically and universally to the reality of sin and the way it breaks everything in our world. But the Bible also gives a category for not just sin generically or universally causing sickness, but also sin specifically causing sickness. The Bible gives this category where we can be physically sick because of unconfessed sin in our lives. So this is 1 Corinthians 11. This is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what's happening in this part is that there are people in the church at Corinth who are taking communion improperly, unrighteously. They're fighting with each other, not resolving it, going to take communion. And Paul says, that's off. It's wrong. It's not okay. But look at what he says is happening because of their unconfessed and unrepented of sin. Verse 30, he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So because of their unconfessed and unrepented of sin, it has led to physical sickness. Now stay with me. Not always. Not always does sin in particular lead to particular sickness. We know that because of John chapter 9. Right? Jesus has this interaction with a blind man in John chapter 9, and the religious leaders come to him and say, hey, this man was born blind. Is that because of his sin or because of the sin of his parents? What sin led to this man's ailment? And this is what Jesus says in John 9, 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So all sickness comes from sin universally, Some sickness comes from sin explicitly, but not all sickness is a direct result of sin. So a bad application of verse 15 is to become a sin hunter, right? Like if someone comes to you and they're like, I can't come to group tonight, I have the flu. It's not like, well, what are you lying about? What sin are you hiding? That's a bad application of verse 15. Not all sickness comes from sin in our lives, but sometimes it does. And that's a category the Bible has that I don't think we have as modern 21st century Americans. Because here's why we don't have that category. We think we are body and mind and soul. 
not interconnected at all. We think, okay, this is my physical life, this is my mental life, and this is my spiritual life, and they don't interact. They don't touch each other. And the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't give that category. It says that all of them are one in each other. They're all a part of the same, that we are body and mind and soul or spirit, that they're all interconnected. And what we do with our bodies affects our spirit, and what we do with our spirit affects our bodies. I think this comes out most clearly when we think about mental health. All right, I, need you to, I need you to trust me. I need you to track with me. I grew up in a church tradition where if you struggled with depression, it was only 100% spiritual. That if you said, I wrestle with mental health, I struggle with depression, that the antidote that they would give you is to pray more, have more faith, go to church more, and confess the sin you're not confessing. And so I think rightfully, many in my generation and the generation after me have said, no, we rebel against that. But what we've done is we've swung so far the other way that depression has only become physical. And so it's just the wiring in our brains. It's just the chemical imbalances. It's just the physical categories. And the Bible would say, no, it's actually both. It's both. It's both the physical and the spiritual. Sin universally affects our chemical wiring, and sin specifically affects our hearts and minds before the Lord. It's all interconnected. This is why when folks come to me to talk about their depression and talk about their mental health and their struggle, I'm going to ask questions about the physical. I'm going to ask questions like, hey, have you seen a physician? Have you gotten that checked out? Have you thought about medication? Have you talked about it? I'm also going to ask, hey, how's your diet? Are you sleeping enough? How are you exercising? I'm also going to ask, have you read your Bible lately? How's your prayer life? Do you have any unconfessed and you need to talk about? Because it's all interconnected. So James says, hey, when someone's sick, call the elders, anoint with oil, pray for healing, and think about if there's some unconfessed sin you need to address. All right, let's deal with the second one. Number two, we believe God still heals people today. We believe God still heals people today. I want to make something abundantly clear. At Citizens Church, we believe in a God who still heals. We believe in a God who not only still heals, but wants to heal. And so we pray in faith when folks are sick, and when they're hurting, and when they're in torment, and when they're suffering in the body. And we believe in faith that God will heal. But here's what you have to understand. That healing may not come how we want and when we want. So sometimes God heals instantly. Sometimes someone's walking through physical sickness, physical pain, and we pray and it's like, boom, healed instantly. Sometimes God heals over time through the prayers of his people and through the glorious miracle that is doctors and physician's assistants and nurses and modern medicine. And sometimes God heals at the end of all things. When Christ returns or calls us home to be with him and our bodies are resurrected in perfection and we spend eternity with Jesus where there's no more ibuprofen or shots or surgery or chemotherapy or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But God always heals in his timing and in his way. And we trust his hand in all of it. And so I want to make sure you hear me on this. I said this at the beginning of this section, but some of you have been lied to. And it's caused tremendous hurt and tremendous harm in your life because someone said, hey, you're dealing with this, whatever it may be, some physical ailment, some physical reality, some sickness, some way things are not supposed to be. And they have told you and had the audacity to tell you that it's because that you don't have enough faith that you're not healed. The Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that's not what's happening. Here's two reasons why I can say that. One is notice who's praying in James chapter five. Who offers the prayer of faith? Not the person who's sick, the elders. So if it is because of lack of faith that they're not healed, well, that's because the elder, the person who's praying, doesn't have faith, not because of them. But secondly, we would reject that wholeheartedly and say, no, secondly, it's actually because God works how he wants to work, when he wants to work. And he's going to heal in his way, in his timing, now, through a long process, or in eternity with Jesus. So we pray in faith, absolutely. 
We seek the Lord in faith, absolutely. And we believe him for healing, absolutely. And when he says, hey, no, not right now, not in this way, not in this particular manner, we say, all right, Lord, we trust your hand. I think the clearest example of this is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Right? He pleads with the Lord over and over and over again, take this thorn, take this thorn, take this thorn. And God's like, no. And I don't think any of us would have the audacity to say it's because Paul lacks faith. <laughs> I would not say that. But he says, no, Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. This is there. I'm going to say no to taking it away so that I get the glory in your life. Because in my providence and my kindness, I need this so that you can see that I'm getting the glory. My power in your weakness. And so in those moments, we say, even through tears, all right, Lord, your will. Your will, not mine. All right, that's number three. Is anyone sick? Get the elders. Check for any unconfessed sin and let's pray. I promise the last two are going to be fast. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Question four, is anyone in sin? Confess your sins and pray. Is anyone in sin? Is anyone rebelling against God, acting as they shouldn't or not acting as they should? He says, grab a believer, confess your sins, tell them what's up and let them pray for you and experience deep, rich spiritual healing. So when we are in sin, we confess our sins to God. We bring our sins to God and we confess and bring our sins to one another. This is part of why in our community groups every week we have that engage the heart time. It's not just a time to complain about your boss or to whine about your kids or to talk about what you ate for lunch. All right. It's a time to confess your sins before one another and have them pray for you and receive spiritual healing. So James says, do that. Confess your sins to God and confess your sins to one another. If you're not in a group, get in a group. All right, last one. Skip over 17 and 18. Let's go to 19. I told you they were fast. 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. Question number five, is anyone wandering? pray and bring them back. Is anyone wandering? Pray and bring them back. I love that James in this letter that's been so you do this, you do this, you live out your faith, you have works that prove your faith, you watch how you treat money, you watch how you patiently suffer, you, you, you. He ends by turning our attention outwards and says, hey, the people around you, is anybody missing? Is anybody wandering? Is anybody gone? There's lots of ways that, that someone can wander. We can wander theologically, we can start compromising on the gospel. We can start compromising on the truths of scripture. We can start saying like, I don't know if the Bible really says that or really means that, or if God really wants that. We can become a law unto ourselves. People can wander morally, start compromising on our ethics, start saying this statement. I know the Bible says this, but I want to do this instead. Justification for sin, justification for unrighteousness, just a little bit of compromise here and there. People can wander relationally. I've seen this a ton in ministry where folks aren't walking away from Jesus. They're just walking away from other Christians. They start pulling back a little bit by little bit. They start missing a little bit, being absent, not responding, not checking in, not answering. Little bit by little bit, and then eventually the isolation kills them. And oftentimes they end up walking away theologically and morally as well. And James says at the, end of the ver at the end of the book, does that sound like someone you know? Do you know someone who is wandering from the faith? Notice what he says. Call your elder, tell him to check on him. No. Call your CG leader, tell him to check on him. No. Hey, talk about it with everybody else in your group. Be like, you think they're missing too? Yeah, me too. I'm worried too. Yeah, no. He says, go get them. Go get them. 
If they're wandering, go pray and then go get them. Go bring them back, pursue them, chase them down, love them enough to have the hard conversation. Hey, I got some questions. You haven't shown up to church in like four months. Like, I just got some questions. I'm concerned about your heart, concerned about where you're at with Jesus. Can we just talk about it? Because I love you and I want more for you. Hey, I saw that, that th- I heard that thing you said in group where you were like, I don't know if we can trust the Bible. Like, I just, I got some questions. I'm just wondering, like, are you, what, what's going on in your heart? Hey, I noticed you've been, been reaching for that stuff, those vices, those things that we talked about you were going to stay away from. And it seems like you're going back to them. Like, I just, how you doing? Can we talk about it? Love them enough to put your reputation and your approval on the line and to say, Hey, I'm going to go get you. I'm going to bring you back. Listen, God keeps his people. Perseverance of the saints. We believe that doctrine. God gives you the Holy Spirit, seals you. We believe that. And according to the scriptures, one of the most powerful tools God uses to keep his people is his people. He uses us to keep one another. All right, let me end with some encouragement and then I'll kind of get us where we're going. James's invitation in all of these, if you can't tell, has something to do with praying. (laughs) I love that. This whole book on do this, do this, do this. He ends with, hey, pray. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing prayers of praise. If you're in sickness, call the elders and pray and so on and so forth. And I love that he pauses right here in the middle of this passage, because I think oftentimes what we feel, the discouragement we sense in our prayers is, do they matter? Like that person's been sick for a long time and we've been praying for them for a long time. Do our prayers matter? Like I've been struggling with this sin for a long time. Does it matter? Like I, I know that I should sing if I'm cheerful, but like God knows I'm cheerful. Does it matter? Like, I know I'm suffering, but I keep praying and I'm not getting any peace or relief. Does my prayer even matter? And I love what he says, 16 through 18. He says this. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. James says, for those of you who would doubt if your prayers matter, consider Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, meaning Elijah was human. (laughs) And he was depressed often. He was afraid for his life often. He was worried often, anxious often, and yet he prays for fervently and for three years and six months, it does not rain. And he prays again and God sends rain. And he says, hey, consider Elijah. Elijah's a man like you. He struggles too. He has sinned too. But then notice what else is true about Elijah. He's made righteous through faith, just like all of you who are in Christ. She says, consider Elijah. Isn't Elijah a human with struggle and sin? Isn't Elijah full of sin and yet declared righteous through faith in Jesus? And he prays and the miraculous happens. So, hey, pray. Because here's the good news. And here's what you have to believe in order to step into this prayer. The power of prayer is not in the person who's praying. It's not in the words you say. It's not in the oil you anoint with. And it's not with the amount of faith you have because Jesus says faith like a mustard seed moves mountains. The power of prayer is in the God who the prayers are offered to. That is the power in our prayer. That when we are suffering, we pray, not just throwing words up to the sky, but to a God who listens. That when we're sick, we call the elders and we pray together for faith, not to a God who is absent or distant or doesn't care or not able to do anything, but a God who is present and powerful. That when we are stuck in sin and we confess and people pray for us and we receive spiritual healing, we have a God who doesn't say, oh, yeah, you screwed up again. I knew it. We have a God who says, yes, and my grace is sufficient for your weakness. We have a God in every situation who hears our prayer, loves our prayer, and welcomes our prayer. And so we pray because he is powerful.